Well, this morning uh, we're going to take a look at Psalm 1. So if you want to go ahead and open up your copy of the Word of God to, uh, to Psalm 1. A couple of things about this particular psalm that I f- find interesting the first time I really started studying through the psalms was this psalm is uh, really almost in the same form and pattern as a proverb. Um, you see in it what is common in the proverbs as the two ways uh, the way of the wise versus the way of the fool. And it sets this uh, psalm out uh, in a unique place among just a few psalms as psalms that are called wisdom psalms. One of the few psalms in book one, which is, um, I believe it's one through 41, that all, almost all are associated with David, this one's not associated with any author. Some commentators uh, think that it may have been written by uh, Solomon, but um, can't say that dogmatically. It's interesting, its placement at the beginning of the Psalms is very much like an introduction to the Psalms. So most of the Psalms are Psalms that we might say are prayers or praises back to God. This particular Psalm is, should not be viewed as a prayer or even a praise back to God, but it really should be viewed as <laughs> What are the qualifications of the man or woman of God who wants to pray to God or who wants to worship God? And so we'll see as the psalmist works through this, as we work through this, the psalmist lays out some of the qualifications of the man or woman of God who desires to worship. Almost, one commentator said, he explains some of the prerequisites for the man or woman of God who desires to worship God rightly and pray back to God. So let's read uh, Psalm 1, and I'm reading out of the uh, ESV. The psalmist says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish." So this short psalm, the six verses, the psalmist is kind of extolling what uh, the blessedness of someone who avoids the path of the wicked and who desires a life of righteousness. And he does this uh, in the first three verses with first a negative term in verse 1, then a positive term in verse 2, and then alludes to blessing, the blessings in verse 1, he compares to a tree, a tree prospering because it's planted by water, and then looks at the life of the wicked in verse 4 and verse 5, and then concludes it in verse 6, really with what would be an explanation as to why these things are true about the man that's blessed. So he begins in verse 1 by talking about three things that the righteous man doesn't do. So what are those three things that a righteous man shouldn't do or doesn't do? Doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or become a scholar. Yeah, he doesn't walk, stand, or sit. One commentator said it's an interesting backward progression of movement. Usually we think of somebody sitting, and then they stand, and then they walk. But the psalmist starts and goes from walking to standing to sitting. What is a walk when we talk about it in biblical terms? Coming alongside. That's one thing, coming alongside. A pattern, a way of life. And the psalmist here talks both about walk and about uh, way as we get to the end here. Um, What is uh, to stand. Standing would to be, be, be with, 
that would be more the come alongside and then sitting. Sitting is remaining. Remaining with. Yeah, you've joined the group. That's very, that's a good way of putting it. You've joined the group. The um, ESV uses the word counsel when, he, when it says the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. The actual Hebrew word that's translated there can mean counsel or advice. And one commentator said we probably shouldn't view it that way as advice, but we should probably view this word in a more broad sense as to the principles that determine your actions. Influence. Influence. Probably a great way to to say it. Influence. What influences you? What influences the way you make your decisions? So the godly man or woman not only rejects the wicked, but the godly man or woman would also reject the philosophical underpinnings of how that wicked person or unrighteous person makes their decisions. One commentator said it would also include all the moral principles that lead to the conclusions that someone might make. So if I am walking in the way of the wicked, then I'm allowing worldly philosophy, I'm allowing a worldly um, view uh, as opposed to a biblical view to influence how I make my decisions and how I uh, walk. It's like adopting a humanistic worldview versus adopting a biblical worldview. The, uh, and then we move from the walking to uh, standing. And if, if counsel would be um, avoiding the humanistic view of life then, um, or humanistic way of the sinner, um, that would be a lifestyle. So adopting a worldly view or a worldly philosophy would lead to the second point, which is a uh, worldly lifestyle. In the first incidence, the psalmist draws our attention to the underlying principles that, the, that this wicked person makes his decisions off of, and the second one points to his practices. So uh, belief leads to practice. So our walking would lead to our standing, and our standing is equated to our practice right, right here. We already mentioned that... Uh, that way and walk are very similar in the scriptures. They're very prominent in the Psalms, and they're very prominent in the Proverbs, and we see it often throughout the rest of scripture, really to point to the way that a righteous person conducts everyday life. So how would you describe a righteous walk? What are some of the words you would use or principles you would use to describe a righteous walk? I know you guys can talk. Loving. Loving who first? God first, right? But expressing that that love. What else? I know this is a bad connotation in some circles, but piety. Yeah. Piety is not a bad thing, necessarily. Can be a bad thing. It depends on what the object of your piety is, right? What is piety? Define that word for us. Um, I guess how we think of the term holiness yeah. in, in a gen- general sense, in a holiness means set apart, it's a broader sense, but just good morals, um, being careful about your, not just your uh, moral behavior, but your, your the heart, your, yeah. your command, obeying the commandments of God rigorously. Because those things come out of the heart, come out of a, a either, the, either the right way or the wrong way comes out of the heart. And the reason we often view that word wrong is we think of it as arrogance. Uh, and, and very often, people that we think are pious are arrogant about their, uh, their holiness, about their own holiness. Um, so the righteous man, the righteous woman, the, the man or woman who desires to live a life after God is one that's not going to walk in the way of the wicked. Um, they're not going to stand um, in the way of the sinner and they're not going to live a lifestyle. They're not going to pursue a lifestyle that's a lifestyle that this world would love. Um, not going to pursue a lifestyle that would imitate that of the wicked. 
And then finally he gets to the point of sitting. Um, he says, does not sit in the seat of the scoffer. And some translations say, does not sit in the seat of a mocker. So what comes to mind when you hear either the term scoffer or the term mocker? Yeah, I, I think of the cross. I think of all the people in the crowd said he saved all these. Why can't he save himself? They were scoffing at Christ. They were mocking Christ. Even the thieves initially on either side of him were doing the same thing until, until he saved one of the two of them. They were scoffing or mocking at him. This particular term, seat of the scoffer, probably refers to a forbidden fellowship. So should we associate with the ungodly? There's only one purpose we should associate with the ungodly for, right? And that would be to witness to them. Other than that, we really shouldn't associate in our daily lives a complete pattern of our lives with the mocker or with the scoffer. The uh, Hebrew word translated here means someone who is self-sufficient who acts with haughty pride, who refuses to accept any instruction both from God and from man. And the word seat refers to either a place to sit within an assembly or to the assembly itself. So if I put those two together, we as as followers of Christ, we as people pursuing righteousness, are not to physically exist and remain among those who scoff God, those who scoff the truth of God. Why? Why shouldn't we do that? We're influenced by it. Now, oftentimes we do that to attempt to influence. But ultimately, um, we have to guard ourselves against not being influenced by them. So the seat or the assembly here is a place where the righteous should not be, will be opposite to the congregation of the righteous, and often within the Old Testament, uh, Israel was considered a congregation, an assembly of the followers of God. And the reason is because the, this is the fellowship of fools, and the fool defined here is someone who is hardened in their unbelief. And even to the point that God has possibly even hardened their heart. As he said of Pharaoh, God actually hardened Pharaoh's heart often. So the group of people that the writer is talking about here is someone who is hardened in their unbelief. One commentator uh, summarized this verse saying, Counsel, way, and seat draw attention to the realms of thinking, behaving, and belonging in which a person's fundamental choice of allegiance is then made and carried through. So, thinking first, behaving second, and belonging third. And it's interesting that Paul covers all three of these topics in his first letter that we have to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and one through 3, he deals with thinking. What was Paul's overall reason for writing 1 Corinthians? What was he doing, setting out to do? He'd received a letter from somebody, right? Telling him about errors in the teachings in the, and the practice of the church at Corinth. So Paul wrote this letter to correct their thinking, their uh, believing, excuse me, their behaving and their belonging. So Paul's written this letter to correct their errors in their beliefs and their errors in their practice that had been reported to him. First, he deals with thinking in the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians, really pointing to the vast difference between human wisdom and godly wisdom. Where do we get human wisdom from? The world and everything of the world. Where do we get godly wisdom from? God, right? And we learn of godly wisdom from a study of God's word, from abiding in God's word and from prayer and from, from worship. The Corinthians were, were basically guilty of bringing worldly reason into their body. Um, that worldly reason is totally different from godly reason. 
Godly reason is, is discovered from study of the Word of God, which is what we call special revelation, right? The Word of God is special revelation versus the general revelation of the world around us. We can only come to know God through His revealed Word and through the Spirit within us that confirms God's Word and confirms that who we are. We can ultimately only understand that to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And those are the three things that, that Paul talks about in the first three chapters. Then he addressed behavior in chapter 5. Any, anybody remember what the specific behavior he initially addressed in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians? It was church discipline because the church wasn't disciplining somebody who was doing what? Gross sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, Paul even says that the world... The Gentiles would recoil at. A man was basically sleeping with his um, stepmom. And the church was doing nothing about it. Doing nothing about it. So he's calling them out on not practicing church discipline and calling them out on um, not correcting this man. What does he say to do to this man? He says, put him out of the assembly. To remove him from the assembly. Remove the sin from your, your midst is basically what he's saying. In addition to the behavior that he called out, a lot of the uh, people in the Corinthian church didn't have any qualms about participating in idolatrous celebrations. Um, should we, should that have any place in our lives, participating in an idolatrous celebration? <coughs> yes, we're free to eat. He says we're free to eat. I can eat a meat sacrificed to an idol, but I should never participate in an idolatrous celebration. This kind of fellowship is forbidden makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And uh, one commentator said it was a little wonder that within their own assembly, these gr- there were gross improprieties to the, degree, to the degree that God disciplined them. And he even disciplined them to taking some of them out, to actually uh, killing some of them because of their gross immorality. Ultimately, the point of all of this, these, this first part of Psalm 1 and what we just talked about out of 1 Corinthians is where does wrong thinking ultimately lead? Wrong action. Out of your belief leads your practice. So if you have wrong beliefs, you're ultimately going to have wrong practice. And that wrong practice ultimately hinders our worship, which is one of the qualifications that the psalmist is pointing to so we can worship, is that we have the right belief and we have the right practice that rises out of that belief so that we can rightly worship God. Because that wrong living, because of wrong belief, would certainly hinder our worship of God. Our blessing doesn't just come from what we do, but our blessing comes from what we believe and what we avoid. And so we should not only believe rightly, behave rightly, but we need to avoid the things that are um, that God tells us to avoid. Very often we think of God's prohibitions as punishment, don't we? The I can'ts, I can't do this, I can't do that, it's a bunch of rules. Think back to the garden with me. What did God prohibit Adam and Eve from doing? One thing. Scripture only records one thing they were prohibited from doing, and that was eating of the tree the knowledge of good and evil. Could they do everything else? They had freedom to do everything else in the garden, to eat of everything else in the garden. But just one prohibition God gave them, what was his reason for giving that prohibition? They would die. They would die. So it was for protection. So God's prohibition here was a way of protection. And ultimately, we should view what God prohibits as a blessing because God's only going to prohibit things in our lives that are going to ultimately harm us or lead us to harm or lead us to a broken fellowship with him. In Christ, we can't lose the relationship, but we can certainly lose fellowship with him and lose our blessings with him. So we should praise God not for just what he gives us, not just what he blesses us with spiritually or materially, but also the things that he prohibits us from doing.
In verse 2, what does he say that the man or woman blessed of God delights in? He delights in the law. He delights in the law and he meditates on it. So he looked at prohibitions in verse 1, and now he looks at actually a provision of God through God's law that we are to delight in. How do we often view the law, though? Restrictive. That's, that's very good. Restrictive. What's the, what was the intent of the law, though? To teach. To teach. Paul calls it a harsh schoolmaster. Not a gentle schoolmaster, but a harsh schoolmaster. The term that's often translated tutor, it's actually a harsh schoolmaster. What does it teach us? Our sin. What does it teach us about our sin? We need a Savior. We can't do anything about it. It did several things for the Israelites. It, number one, set them apart. And it set them apart to be holy unto the Lord. But ultimately, its purpose was to teach them about their sin, teach them that they couldn't overcome their sin, and to teach them that they needed somebody else. And it really was a pointer. All of the Levitical system, all the sacrifices, all those things that were wrapped up in the law were for one purpose only, and that was to point to a Savior, to point to a coming Messiah. Not just a source of specific rules and regulations, which it is, the law is that, but its purpose was to point to a Savior. In Matthew 5, Jesus teaches uh, in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, his... (laughs) Purpose in that teaching was teaching the law and correcting the incorrect view the Pharisees had. What had the Pharisees done to the law? They'd added to it. They'd, what I heard some guys say, they built, if this is good, let's build a fence five feet around that. If that is good, let's build another fence five feet around that. And what they had done is they'd added so many man-made traditions to the law thinking they could protect and thinking they could earn their own righteousness. They even had one law that said, if you had a nail coming out of your sandal and you walked on the Sabbath and it drug in the ground, you were plowing. <laughs> and therefore you were working and you were violating the Sabbath. That's how minute they got. In Matthew 23, Jesus addressing the Pharisees again says that they strained out gnats, but what would they swallow? Camels. So they narrowed in on the small principles. Christ didn't reject those small principles, but what he did was he taught the broad. Even when he talked about they tithe their mint and their cumin, but they overlooked the weightier things of the law, the things that pointed to the need of a Savior. The point of the, to the need of a redeemer, because the law couldn't redeem anyone, could it? All it could do was point to their need of a savior. When we make a cursory reading of the law, do we see all that? What does it require when we study God's word? Meditation. I need to meditate on God's word. And when you think about meditate, what comes to mind? What's the unfortunate thing that comes to mind? Eastern meditation, right? But that's not what this means, because that means clearing your mind. Eastern meditation means throwing everything out of your mind. But what does meditation mean here in this? Yeah, dwelling in it, filling your mind with it. The Hebrew word translated here means to ponder, to speak, to remember, or to muse upon. And it's actually a picture of someone reading the text to himself over and over and over again, out loud in a low, um, one commentator said, like a young lion that growls while he's eating his prey. So this meditation is a constant reading over and over and over again of the text, out loud to yourself. What does it do when you do that? It replaces the bad thoughts, the incorrect thoughts. Someone, uh, was it Herb that would say stinking thinking? Somebody we had, we had a teacher we had years ago would say that. Get rid of the stinking thinking and replace it with good thinking. And that's what this meditation or rumination goes. 
Um, one guy I read translated this, this section of uh, scripture as, Oh, happy is the person who has not shaped his conduct after the principles of the ungodly, nor taken his stand in the way of sinners, nor taken his seat in the assembly of scoffers, but in the law of the Lord he takes his delight, and on his law he keeps pondering day and night, day and night. So the sense here is that the godly man or woman makes a firm and final decision to stand on the word of God, to pattern his thought and his behavior after the word of God by doing what delighting in, or another way to say that is abiding in the word of God. And and abide means what? To remain in or remain with. So the man or woman of God that's seeking after righteousness makes a firm decision to do only that, to abide or remain in in the word of God. Then the writer compares now this um, righteous person, righteous man or woman, to a tree and shifting to a a poetic description of where the blessings are going to come from. He says that he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. So the prosperity that um, the writer is talking about here is the prosperity similar to that of a tree that's planted by uh, abundant water. What does this abundant water do for the tree? It feeds the tree. It nourishes the tree. And the righteous man here is described as someone who delights in the word of the Lord by constantly meditating on it. And he pictures the tree as us depending on the source. So for the tree, what was the source of life? The water and the nutrients that the water brings to the tree. Just like us in our spiritual life, where is our life come from? It comes ultimately from God, but how are we renewed in our daily life? By the Word, by abiding in the Word, by feeding abundantly off of the Word. Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, which was a quote from Deuteronomy 8, 3. Remember, Deuteronomy was a recounting of the law. So Jesus is quoting out of the law when he says in Matthew 4, 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes from where? Out of the mouth of God. And then he gives a promise of prosperity at the end of the verse. What does he say there? In all that he does, he prospers. So does that mean we are to be healthy, wealthy, and wise all of our lives? What kind of prosperity is he talking about? Is he talking about material prosperity or something else? He's talking about spiritual prosperity. It's really important to understand that the prosperity that's promised here is prosperity that that comes as a result of being fed. It, It comes as a result of abiding. Just like the tree... The tree is fed by being planted near um, a lot of water. That water supplies the nutrients to the tree, and the tree yields fruit when? Immediately after it's watered? In due season. So the tree is going to yield fruit in its season based on it being nourished by the water bringing the nutrients to the tree. So the tree prospers And it fulfills its purpose by being planted by an abundant source of water, by taking in nutrients and bearing its fruit in its season. Just like a godly man or a godly woman who abides in the word of God is going to prosper as we abide in the word of God, as we are taught by God. And just like the tree bears its fruit in season, we bear our fruit in season. Part of the process of that we call sanctification. Are we all on the same point 
in our process of sanctification from our salvation to our glorification? No, we're not. We're all in different parts of that. There may be new believers in here that are real early in their sanctification. There may be people who have walked with the Lord a long time that are further along in their sanctification. What, what are some of the things that affects our sanctification? Time in the Word. First and foremost, you have to be a believer. You have to be indwelt by the Spirit. Um, and then so then we are taught by the Spirit through the Word. And the further along we are in that road of sanctification is based upon the work of the Spirit in our lives and our work in abiding in the Word. So we have a responsibility in this process of sanctification just like the Spirit has a responsibility in that. You could also argue that it's the church as well. Absolutely. It's the body itself, and that's, that's the congregation. That's the assembly that we're supposed to be a part of so that that can occur. Um, I heard somebody say many, many years ago in talking about why you should come to church, why you should be a part of an assembly, you don't find anywhere in Scripture someone that was a Lone Ranger Christian. There's somebody that was. That's why monasticism doesn't really work very well to, uh, to bring somebody to spiritual maturity. So while the truth, excuse me, while the tree bears fruit in its season, um, because water doesn't produce instant results, our sanctification produces progressive results in our lives as we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, as we're taught by the Holy Spirit, and as we abide in God's Word. Our growth is based upon both the working of the Spirit and our work, but also doesn't the tree prosper? Doesn't a tree grow stronger in adversity? The same wind that the writer is going to talk in a moment about chaff being blown away. You know, chaff is the byproduct of, of winnowing of grain, and the wind blows that chaff away. The same wind that blows that chaff, if it's strong enough, could affect a tree that has shallow roots. But if a tree has deep roots, it's only going to be really strengthened by that wind. Likewise, in a drought, a tree that has shallow roots in a drought, its leaves are going to wither and fall off and the tree may die. But a tree that has deep roots can continue to prosper. Same is with us in our spiritual condition. If we have shallow roots in the Word of God, if our abiding in the Word of God is not deep, then when adversity comes... And it's not if adversity comes, it's when. We were having a conversation at, at uh, the wedding yesterday. I forget who was there. I think Kay was there, Randy was there. About four or five of us having a conversation about adversity and about trials. And somebody said, you're never not really in a trial. You either just came out of one, you're in the midst of one, or you're about to go into one. And so in those trials, in that adversity that we face, if our roots are deep, we're actually strengthened. Just like a tree whose roots are deep, they're strengthened. When a spiritual drought comes along, if our roots are deep in the Word, then we survive and we're actually strengthened. When we are deeply rooted in the Word, when that adversity does come, as opposed to hindering our growth, God uses it to grow us in more Christ-likeness. Because that's the whole purpose of the adversity he brings our way. What does James say in the first chapter that we're supposed to consider the trials? Pure joy. We don't like to think about that. But all the trials God sends our way, we should consider pure joy because of what the purpose of that trial is. And it's to grow us in Christ-likeness. So we prosper as we abide in the Word of God and avoid the way of the wicked. And this prosperity is not so much material as it is, as it is spiritual. And then in verse 4 and 5, he keeps on going with his contrast, going back to the wicked. He says in the beginning of verse 4, the, the wicked are not so, pointing back to the pros, prospering. The wicked are not so because the wicked are like chaff that the wind blows away. The wicked are like chaff that the wind blows away. He's talking about the nature and the destiny of the wicked and contrasting that to the prosperity and the blessing of the righteous. And he compares that now to a healthy tree and the chaff that 
it blows, that's blown away by the wind. So what are some things that we value in trees? Shade. Shade. Cooling temperature, actually. When torrents come, if the hillside that the water is flowing down doesn't have trees or strong vegetation, what often happens? Uh, flood, mudslides. You look at uh, Southern California the last few years when they've had fires one season, the next season the torrential rains come, great mudslides happen. But in hillsides that have great vegetation and have great trees in them, that's protected. We are often protected by the trees being a windbreak. And then looking to fruit-bearing, we get fruit from, from trees. The, the tree that the writer is talking about here is a fruit-bearing tree. And so we would get fruit uh, and nourishment from a particular uh, fruit. When the f- tree is watered, it prospers. If you water chaff, does anything happen to it besides getting wet? Why does the tree benefit from being watered and nourished? Because it's alive. Why does the chaff not benefit from being watered? Because it's dead. The tree is alive and the chaff is dead. The man or woman that abides in the word is alive. The man or woman that's the wicked he's talking about is dead. Still dead in their trespasses and sins. And the term he used when we look back at scoffers is someone who is hardened in their unbelief. So they indeed are dead in their unbelief. It's interesting, one thing I read, today, chaff is often gathered up and burned instead of just allowing the wind to blow it away. And in some countries, they gather it up and burn it for fuel, just like the wicked in the end are going to be judged by this. So the destiny of the tree versus the destiny of the chaff, the destiny of the righteous person versus the destiny of the wicked The psalm says the wicked will not stand in the judgment. For us, we can picture a final judgment, right? As New Testament believers, we would go to maybe 2 Thessalonians where Paul talks about end times, or we certainly could go to Revelation chapter 20 and talk about, excuse me, the... um, now the millennial reign of Christ and the judgment seat of Christ and then the uh, uh, Bema seat for, um, for those. But the Old Testament saint would understand what the writer meant by chaff here. When the chaff was blown away, it was removed from the assembly to understand that judgment. And so here, the sinful person, the unrighteous person, is removed from the assembly. So we aren't to sit in that assembly of the wicked, but the wicked are removed from the assembly. Even think about the process of church discipline that we know about in Matthew 18 and what Paul was calling the church at Corinth to do in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. In the process of church discipline, what happens? Someone sins, someone that witnesses or knows about it approaches that person in private first. If the person repents, we all celebrate. The rest of us may never know about it. If that person doesn't repent, then we're told to take witnesses with us for a double purpose, to make sure what you're saying is correct, that this person did actually sin, also to be a witness to the process, to making sure the process is done biblically. If the person repents, you've won your brother. If the person doesn't repent, then eventually... The person comes before the assembly. If the person doesn't repent, then what happens? What does Christ command to happen then? Remove them. Remove the sin from among you. So the sin does not affect your assembly. And that's what the Israelite would know right now seeing this. Because they would understand what chaff meant. To remove them or exclude them from the assembly of the righteous. We the blessed... The followers of Christ are not supposed to assemble with the scoffers. Likewise, they're not going to be found in our assembly and should not be found in our assembly. If we had time, we could go through a lot of examples in the Old Testament. But one that came to mind for me was Korah and his rebellion against Moses in Numbers. Anybody know the story? Remember the story of Korah 
and his followers, uh, Dathan and Abiram. Yeah, Dathan and Abiram. So what's, what's the story there? Anybody remember? Yes, sir. Uh, they wanted, I think, more prominent placement in the duties of the tabernacle, and God had the earth swallow them up. Yeah, they wanted more leadership role. They rebelled against Moses, and God opened up the earth and swallowed them. Anybody know how many were swallowed? 14,000. 250 on day one and the rest on day two. Yeah. So immediately, immediately 250 were swallowed up and it included these three men and their entire families and all of their possessions. That meant women and children. And all of their households were swallowed on day one. And then day two, the remainder of the 14,000 and something, the round number is 14,000 people, God killed. God removed from the assembly because of their sin that was brought into the assembly. And we see that same principle in the New Testament. Who can think of an example in Acts? Ananias and Sapphira, what happened to them? Dead. They're dead, instant death. They came before the assembly saying they'd sold a piece of land and they were given the money supposedly from the gain of the sale of this piece of land. And first Ananias comes and uh, Peter asks him, uh, basically, why have you decided in your heart to lie? Why has Satan tempted you to hide, to, to lie against the Holy Spirit? Because he'd only brought a portion and was apparently claiming that this was all and he died on the spot. The young men came, took him away and buried him and several hours later, uh, Sapphira comes in, basically asks the same question. She says, yeah, it was, we sold the land for so-and-so. She died right away, removing sin from the assembly. And the scripture says that um, fear came across both the church and those outside the church. And then they added another 3,000 to, uh, to the body, exactly. <clears throat> so for the unbeliever... Um, sin is judged they're removed from the assembly ultimately uh, they lead to eternal judgment eternal punishment and then he concludes here in verse 6 with um, not just the explanation of the differences in the destinies but kind of the why verse 6 really explains the why the the fate is different Verse 6 says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The psalmist says the Lord knows the way. The Lord Lord knows the way. One translation says the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. Both are valid translations. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked will perish. Perish. We've already talked about what the word way and walk kind of means. A person's whole manner of life, everything in you that directs what you do and all that it produces in you. But the, wor- the, the worthless life of the ungodly will not endure. So ultimately, salvation on the day of judgment depends on what? Who knows you? It's right to say, I know Christ. But it's more important to say, does Christ know me? In talking to the religious leaders in Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, Christ's response to them was, depart from me, for I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. Now, obviously, he knew who they were but he never knew them in a salvific way. So salvation on the day of judgment is equated to being known by God, being known by Christ. The blessings that we receive are the result of walking and pursuing and abiding in Christ. Obviously, that starts with God first to change our heart, giving us a new heart, taking out that heart of stone, giving us a heart of flesh, but the judgment that are, that's received by those who don't walk is a result of their decision not to walk. Because it's a decision they do own. 
someone tells us that the way of the blessed is the way of righteousness. That should involve uh, avoiding worldly wisdom, avoiding worldly actions, avoiding worldly fellowship that would entail intimacy with the ungodly. But we must pursue an intimacy with God through a study of his word. So I said earlier, this psalm is not necessarily a worship psalm. This psalm is not necessarily a psalm that you might pray back to God. But it does lay out what should be considered qualifications by which we can worship God. If we're not thinking right, if we're not living right, if we're not behaving right, if our foundations aren't right, we can't worship God. So the man or woman of God who is blessed of God is the one that abides in the word, is the one that remains in the word, is the one that remains alongside God. And my prayer for myself and my prayer for all of us, my prayer for this body here, is that we're known as a people of the book. That we're known as a people that pursue God. We're known as a people who abide in his word. Because that's the only way we're going to grow is if we abide in the word. Questions? Sir? Um, Associating with yeah. What do you think the line is? I mean, because most of us aren't in, in don't, most of the people we know that are non-Christian are, tend to be our nice, moral neighbors yeah. who don't associate with, you know, highly moral people. But, and what do you think the line is to have friendships with, you know, or they're not doing active, ungodly, or hostile to Christianity? I think of two things. One, if I look at the specific ungodly that the writer of this psalm is pointing to is the person that's hardened in heart. That's the person that is the mocker, the scoffer of God. The person um, to mind comes Christopher Hitchens. Anybody know who Christopher Hitchens is? He, he's, he's one of the white horsemen of the, uh, the new atheist. Um, he, would, he would only be here to scream and yell at all of us call us vile, evil, wretched things because we believe in God, because we actually believe this word. That's the person we are to avoid with one exception only, and that's to witness to them. With your moral neighbor, you should, you should associate with your moral neighbor for two reasons. One, because the person's a good person and you need to live at peace, Paul says, as much as is possible, we're to live at peace with our neighbors, right? But ultimately, what's our purpose for living at peace with them? It's to share the love of Christ with them. So the way that I believe we should divide it is I don't have a purpose in associating in an assembly. Like, Should I go to a convention of atheists? Probably not. Probably not. But should I go to a neighborhood barbecue where 60 people from my neighborhood are gathering to have a barbecue on the 4th of July. Yeah, I should do that. I should do that to be neighborly. I should do that to live at peace with them. I should do that so that they think I'm not as strange as I think I am because I get up on Sunday morning and go to church every Sunday. Say again? Yeah, so they have an opportunity to witness. So I don't close that relationship off. It's like... It's like um, Many of my family members are not believers. Um, some of them are even antithetical to what we believe. If I break my relationship with them, I will never have an opportunity to witness to them. Unfortunately, it's a gray line between that. Does that help? Yeah. yeah. My, I was thinking, my wife used to work retail, and she, um, she had good relationships. There were a couple of guys that were, they were homosexuals, yeah. and, and she had excellent relationships. The thing that surprised them was that she knew she was a Christian. Yeah. I mean, a very an evangelical Christian. And she said that, I just respect you because you treat me like a human being. Right. I've had that response to people I work with that are homosexuals. I don't tiptoe around the truth, but I don't pick up my Bible and beat them over the head and shoulders. I want to love them toward Christ. I want to keep an opportunity open so that they're going to listen to me. I flew with a young lady 
about three months ago, and uh, the first day of the trip, um, I'm talking about what I do, talking about uh, even teaching, and she's not saying anything. Finally, the beginning of the second day, she begins talking about her wife, looking for a reaction because she grew up in the South. So she had a preconceived notion of how I was going to react to her. I didn't react the way she expected me to react. So I was able to talk to her for the rest of the four-day trip I flew with her. Now, did anything go in? I don't know. Only God knows if what I said is going to have an impact. But I have no doubt she was expecting me to react a certain way because she, she grew up in the Southeast. She grew up in the Bible Belt and probably has been confronted that way by, by, quote, Christians. And I didn't react that way, and it surprised her. And so I kept the opportunity alive to talk to her, as opposed to shutting the door right away. So i got to be careful not to do that. But I also have to be careful to not deny the truth. I have to continue to teach the truth and speak the truth. Anything else? Sir? Yeah, because the psalmist doesn't cover that. Because the psalmist doesn't cover that. We're just talking about it. So how would you? you want, I hold somebody to their profession. So if I have someone that professes to be a believer, I hold them to that profession. But if I have opportunity, the things I say is, you say this, you say you believe this, but you behave this way, do the two Line up. That's how I believe you address that. Is you say, oh, you say you're a believer. You say you're a follower of Christ. You say you believe the word. But here's what you do. Do the two line up. And just use, let the word do its work. Is what you got to do. Because I can't change anybody's heart, can I? It's the word that has to change somebody's heart. And so I want to get them looking at the word. And ultimately, if they are a believer, they'll repent of that and, and change their walk based on the word. If they're not a believer, hopefully the word will do its work and God will draw them to himself. I think the other way you can address that would be, for instance, you could say, well, right now, like, this is what I'm reading the Bible and this is what it's teaching me and stuff like that. So sure. I kind of see what you're doing and thinking of yourself. Oh, yeah, I'm not doing it. I don't do that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you can just kind of talk to them like, you know, they say they are, talk to them like they are, and just let them see the difference. Yeah, that's kind of what I, what I mean when I say I hold them to their profession. I take them at their word. They say they're this. Then talk about what I do and talk about what they do versus what the word has to say. But even with them, I shouldn't beat them about the head and shoulders with the Bible because that's just going to hurt. might even hurt me. <laughs> That's exactly right. The Bible should do that. The scriptures should do that. It's done that to me before. All right. Thanks for your attention.